The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of Genesis in the third chapter, verses 22 to 24. The last three verses in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the men. And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now I call your attention to this statement, these three verses in this third chapter of Genesis, for one main reason. And that is because of the light which they throw upon the situation in which we find ourselves in this world at this present hour. Now that doesn't mean that I'm going to preach about the world situation. I mean by that that I'm not going to preach on it in the sense that I'm going to uh, discuss with you what has been happening in a political and in a military sense. Not in the sense that I'm going to give my opinions as to whether it should have happened and whether this should be done and that shouldn't have been done. Not in that sense at all. Because that, it seems to me, is not the province of the church. That is not the business of the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is something profounder than that and much more important than that. It is really just to discover why it is that things like that happen. There's nothing sadder to me than to see men who are supposed to speak with the insight which God alone can give, speaking just as men and almost as politicians. Now, the Bible is much profounder than all that. The Bible is aware of these historical events as you and I are aware of them this evening. It isn't that I'm commending some kind of otherworldliness which pretends to take no interest at all in this world. That again is wrong. The scriptures don't teach that. The Bible speaks to us always in the precise condition in which we find ourselves. And it's got a great message that covers the whole of life. And so, you see, without entering into the details of what is happening in the world today, the Bible speaks about them in a profound manner which nothing else can approach. And it's in that way that I want to put all this before you at this present hour. Now, there is nothing, I sometimes think, which so proves the truth of the biblical teaching as the way in which men and women refuse to consider the biblical teaching. Because the fact is that they don't consider it. You would have thought that any time of crisis and of turmoil and confusion in the world would have driven people back to the Bible. 
but it doesn't do so. They turn in every other direction. They consider every other possible explanation. And there's only one explanation for that. It is, as I say, the one which the Bible itself gives us. It tells us that man is spiritually blind. That uh, to the extent that he does see at all, he just sees in a human sense and in a material sense. He's blind to the really important things, to the unseen powers and forces, which are after all the most important ones and the most vital ones. And there, you see, is uh, the illustration of what I was saying a second or two ago. The tragedy of men in general is that he only sees the visible, he doesn't see the invisible. And therefore at the present hour he doesn't see the real cause of his troubles. He thinks in terms of men, certain individuals, who've done this or that which they shouldn't do, and what should be done and so on, and he gets excited about it. But these are mere symptoms. It's what can't be seen by the visible eye that rarely accounts for all this. It's what lies at the back of it. Now, the Bible is interested in that. You see, the Bible is a very old book. And it's been in this world for such a long time. The Bible has seen many a crisis come and many a crisis go. The Bible was here, you know, during the last war. It was here in the First World War. It was here exactly as it is now in the time of the Napoleonic War, when people got so excited and thought that the world had never been in such a situation as it was then. The world is always saying that. Every generation tends to repeat it. But the Bible, you see, as it were, looks through all that. And it says, yes, you are interested in the manifestations, in the symptoms. But the tragedy is that you don't see what it is in human nature and in life in this world as it is now that keeps on throwing up these crises. What it is that turns the world into the condition in which you are seeing it in your time as your forefathers and great-grandfathers and still further back saw it in their day and generation. And so the Bible comes to us and says... Why won't you come and consider what I've got to say? For here is the real answer, and the only answer. The Bible really tells us this evening the two things that we all should want to know. And the two things are these. First of all, why are things as they are? And the second, how can they be put right? Now, you know, that's the whole problem, isn't it? It really comes down to that. If you like it in other language, diagnosis, treatment. Now then, here lies the rub. Here's the difficulty, isn't it? The world really doesn't want to consider that first question. It's only interested in the second. And that is why the world doesn't like the Bible. Because the Bible says that you cannot come to the second unless you've truly understood the first. Now the Bible stands there right up against us at that very point and says this is impossible. You cannot have the treatment until you've submitted to the diagnosis. But the world hates this diagnosis. 
It says I'm not interested in that. I don't care what the cause is as long as you can put it right. Now, we all know that, don't we? We all tend to be like that with our physical illnesses. When we are suffering in acute pain or something like that and a doctor comes in and just stands and looks at us and asks us a number of questions and then begins to examine us and again looks at us and just puts his hand upon us and then listens to our heart or something else we are saying within ourselves, what's this man wasting time for? Why doesn't he relieve my pain? Very natural, very human. But he knows very well that until he's fairly clear in his mind as to the cause of your pain, it's a very wrong and not to say a very dangerous thing for him to attempt to relieve your pain. But we don't like this, I say. We don't like this probing, this analysis. We know what it's going to do. We know what it's going to say about us, and we don't want that. The world today really hates the first part of the gospel, and it immediately wants the solution and the treatment, as I'm going to try to show you. But here it is. And in this uh, little paragraph that we're looking at this evening, the two aspects are put before us. And all I want to do is to hold them before you. What a perfect picture it is of the modern men and the modern world. Don't you see it? Well, there it is. Look at Adam and Eve. There they are out in the great wide world in the wilderness of life. They've been driven out of paradise. They've been driven out of a place where they just had to pick the fruit and eat it. And here they are faced with a barren wilderness, alone and isolated, at the mercy of all sorts of animals and beasts, not knowing what to do, frustrated and confused, feeling a terrible loneliness with the problem of life coming down heavily upon them. There they are. And isn't that, I say, an absolutely perfect picture of modern men? He's confused. He feels he's in a wilderness. He doesn't understand life. It doesn't seem to be turning out as he thought it would. It isn't as he'd like it to be. But there he is. He can't help himself. He finds himself outside somewhere. And he's always trying to get back somewhere and can't do so. That's exactly what we are told here. You see, it is a very perfect representation of the whole predicament of men at this very moment. Now let me analyze it for you, in order that we may bring out the two sides, the diagnosis and the treatment. There is the man and the woman, I say, outside, driven out by God. But why are they outside? Why should they ever be in that position? Why should these two, who have known such a different life and such a different existence, why should they suddenly find themselves in this position in which they're surrounded by problems and difficulties, battling against immensities which they don't understand, conscious of having lost something? How have they ever got into such a position? Which is just another way of asking this question. Why is the world as it is this night? Well, now, here's the first answer. Man is as he is and is in his present position because he refused to realize at the beginning who and what he is and tried to be something that he isn't and was never meant to be. 
Now, I've put it in the form of a long statement because it seems to me to be the only way in which it can be put adequately to us. But in the scripture, it's put in a very brief word. Listen to this. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. That's a tremendous statement, that. To till the ground from whence he was taken. What a tremendous statement about men. What does it tell us? It tells us this. That man, after all, is a created being. And he was created from the dust of the earth. That's not the modern view of man, is it? But that's the truth about him. He was taken from the ground. God took some of the dust of the earth, and from that he made man, and then breathed his spirit into him. That's man, a created finite being. That's his origin. But man, you see, didn't like that. And he wasn't content with it. And the devil knew that, so he knew exactly how to tempt men. So he came to men and he said to him, Yea, hath God said he shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, yes, he has said it, and I'll tell you why he has said it. He has said that because he knoweth that in the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall become as gods knowing good and evil. And men, of course, jumped to the bait. He accepted it at once. He didn't like this suggestion that he was only finite and that he was dependent upon God and that he must live a life of obedience. He pulled himself up to his full height. He's not a creature that's come from the dust. Man. Man's a kind of God. There's no limit to man. Man. Marvelous man. That was his conception. So when the devil came with his suggestion, man was very ready indeed to listen to him, to this suggestion that he would become indeed and in fact, if only he disobeyed God and did this thing which the devil suggested to him, he would then be as God. And he felt that he had it in him to stand there and to be equal with God. And so he ate of the fruit. And it's that and that alone that is the explanation of why man is as he is this evening. It was because of that he was thrust out of the garden, driven out. Now I put it in my way by putting it like this, that man is as he is because he refused to realize who and what he is and tried to be something that he was never meant to be. And the whole story of the human race, the whole history of the world, stems out of that one primary, original, fatal fallacy. Now, I don't want to keep you with this first point tonight, but it is of the very essence of the preaching of the Bible and the Gospel to say this. That man's greatest trouble is still his great conceit of himself. The Apostle Paul puts that in his way in language such as this. That God, he says, has made a way of salvation 
in which this pride of men, and especially his pride of intellect, should be humbled and abased. Ye see your calling, brethren, he says to the Corinthians, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty, and base things of the world and things that are not, to bring to naught things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. And then he winds it up by a quotation of scripture in which he says, Him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. But you see, that's the very thing men refuse to do at the beginning. That's the thing he still persists in refusing to do. Man, I say, has got this fundamental false view of himself, his potentiality, his ability, and his power. He feels that really he's a kind of giant, a genius, and that he's capable of anything, and he worships men. Now, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not overdrawing the picture. You and I, my dear friends, have the misfortune in a sense of living at a time when we are reaping what's been going on for about a hundred years. There's been a great turning away from God during the last hundred years. And it's all been due to the fact that man really began to believe that he didn't need God. Why didn't he need God? Well, because he was so wonderful himself. Because there was nothing he couldn't do. He could make a paradise a perfect work, a perfect world. So, you see, this ancient fantasy persists. Man will forget that he's come from the ground, from the dust. And he hates the, the idea, but you see, he finds himself constantly groveling in the dust and licking it. God keeps on reminding man that he's come from it. So every time man exalts himself, he's stricken down, and there he is licking the dust again. This is a tremendous statement. Therefore the Lord God sent men from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. I pass from that to my second principle, which is this one. That all that man obtains in this folly and sin of his, apart from God, always disappoints him and always leads to further trouble. Now this again is another very important principle. Here it is as the scripture puts it. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God drove him out of the garden. But you notice the first statement. Man is the result of his action in eating of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did obtain a knowledge of good and evil. That was the thing he wanted. He thought that as long as he'd have that and everything would be right and all his problems would be solved as it were and life would be absolutely perfect. So when the devil came and said, you eat of that and it'll enlighten you and you'll be as gods and you'll know everything. You'll have a knowledge of evil as well as good. That's the thing I want, says men. I want this knowledge of evil as well as good. You see, before that man was ignorant of evil... He was living in paradise. He was in perfect correspondence with God. He never knew anything but blessing. 
He didn't have to work to get his food. He lived in communion with God. He always enjoyed peace and happiness and joy. The life of men until this point was one of unmixed and unadulterated joy and bliss. And he knew nothing but that. But you see, he wanted to have this knowledge of evil as well as good. He thought this would enlarge his ambit, enlarge his scope. So he does what God has told him not to do at the suggestion of the devil. And as the result, he obtains the knowledge of evil as well as good. He's got it. But alas for men, the moment as he wears it where he puts the grapes into his mouth, they become sour. And that's the whole story of mankind, you know. The grapes becoming sour. The knowledge which he thought was going to make everything perfect, turning against him. Now, I want to show you that how it happened immediately, men sinned and fell. You see, men looked at all these things theoretically, and his position was this. Now, I've got such a great capacity. Uh, there is nothing really that is beyond me. Uh, I'm capable of taking it all in and holding it all, and I can enjoy it all. So he went in for the knowledge of evil. Yes, but you see, when he got it, this is what he discovered. That the knowledge of evil that he obtained was not the knowledge of evil that God has. God has a knowledge of good and evil. God looks upon both good and evil from the outside and objectively. God looks down upon them. But alas for poor men, his knowledge is not an objective one. He obtained a knowledge of evil, objective knowledge. And what was the knowledge? Well, it was this. It was the knowledge of the fact that the moment he ate that prohibited fruit, he became the slave of evil. He was under the power of evil, under the dominion of Satan and of sin. He's got a knowledge of evil. Ah, yes, we've all got it. But what is this knowledge? Well, here it is, says the Apostle Paul in the seventh chapter of the epistle to the Romans. To do is present with me, but how to perform I know not. The evil that I would not, that I do. And the good that I would, I do not. I find a law in my members dragging me down, warring against the law of my mind, my knowledge of evil. That's it, and you've got it, haven't you? Man wanted the knowledge of evil. Well, he's got it, and this is it. That within us there is a kind of inferno. You're conscious, oh, you're not every one of us is conscious of it, of some terrible power operating inside us. You may wake up in the morning and before you've had time truly to wake up and to think actively and positively an evil thought comes to you. That's your part of your knowledge of evil. You may walk down the streets as innocent as a child as it were and suddenly you find that there's evil within you. Knowledge of evil responding to something. Man did obtain a knowledge of good and evil, but that's the knowledge he got. 
That isn't God's knowledge. God sees it and hates it and is above it and is going to destroy it. Man must come to know it as an incubus that is upon him, as something that grips him, not only without but within. We've got an appalling knowledge of evil, every one of us. It's inside us. Man, in seeking it, has found it. But it wasn't what he'd anticipated. It wasn't what he'd expected. And, of course, another part of his knowledge of evil is this. That he's not only come to know it as a great and a malign influence and power in his life. He's obtained a knowledge of it in its evil consequences. And what are these over and above the ones I've mentioned? Well, here it is. Here's the first. Punishment. Thrown out of the garden, shivering in the cold, in the great wide world without any protection, having to slave and work and labor. That's the consequence. He's knowing that. He'd never known that before. The consequences of evil. You cannot sin without receiving a certain amount of punishment immediately. Remorse. Feeling you've been a fool. Wondering what it was that made you do it again, though you were so miserable the last time you did it. What is it, you say? And you kick yourself and scarify yourself. Remorse. Shame. And then accompanying this misery. Depression. Fear of the future. Wondering what's happening, what can you do. And all that follows all that. And then, looming at the back of it all, and perhaps most terrifying of all, the certain knowledge that it all leads on to death. Man, you see, was placed on probation by God. And if he had only obeyed God and continued to obey him, he would never have died. Death would never have come in. If man had only obeyed God, God would have allowed him to eat of the tree of life and man would have attained immortality as a reward for his probation. But he took the law into his own hands and therefore the curse comes upon him. The day thou eatest thereof thou shalt die. And the specter of death appeared before him. He's thrown out and there he's facing it. It stands away back on the horizon. Death! but it comes nearer and nearer to him, and we are all aware of it. Now that, you see, is life as the result of the fall of men and as the result of sin. That is how it happened at the beginning, and that is how it is still happening. We are all born with this knowledge of sin and of evil, but you see, in our own way and in our own day and generation, we are doing exactly the thing that Adam did. The trouble with man has always been that he has put his faith in knowledge in the place of his faith in God. That's what Adam did, wasn't it? He said, if only I get this knowledge, I don't need God. Therefore, I can afford to disobey God. Given this knowledge, I'm absolutely complete. I need nothing further. So he trusted and put all his faith in knowledge. I would remind you again that during the last hundred years, there has been this great departure from God. 
You know, we have very great exceptions in this country by being in this place of worship tonight. The vast majority of people in Great Britain are not in a place of worship tonight. They're not listening to sermons about God. Why not? Well, I'll tell you. Man, do you see, decided, I say about a hundred years ago, that knowledge would render men independent of God. And especially, of course, scientific knowledge. With our latest discoveries and inventions, men argued, we shan't need God at all. We'll even be able to create heat and we'll be able to produce artificial rain to fructify our, our crops. God won't be necessary people in the past because of their ignorance. Pray to God for blessings of the harvest and so on. We are independent. We've discovered so much learning, knowledge, scientific knowledge especially. And we've put our faith in science. And what is our position at this hour? Well, isn't it again just a repetition of what happened at the beginning? The grapes have become very sour again. The knowledge which we thought was going to solve all our problems is actually this evening our greatest problem of all. Science. Yes, marvelous. We said if we've only got this, then we'll need nothing else. With science and knowledge and acts of parliament, we really will be able to go on. God, well, of course, he may have been needed. We don't. And science, we've gone in for it. And we've got the knowledge. And we've split the atom. And that's our problem. The atom which we've split. The knowledge we've obtained. It is the very knowledge in which we pinned our faith that constitutes our greater pro greatest problem as it became the greatest problem for poor Adam and Eve as they were thrust out of the Garden of Eden. Oh, they must have felt good to God that we'd remained in ignorance. Why did we ever ask for this knowledge of evil? Oh, that we'd gone on as we were, but it's too late, they're out. But man is so slow to learn that lesson and to ask that question. Do you still feel, my friend, that with all your modern knowledge and learning that you have no need of God? Well, that's the sort of thing that puts men out of paradise and into the howling barren wilderness. But that brings me to my next principle, which is this one. That men still, in spite of all this, is foolish enough to try to evade the consequences of his own sin and action. And to try to clutch at certain blessings which he desires. Here it is put in this form. God said, behold, the man is become as one of us. You see there the doctrine of the Trinity, don't you? God isn't talking to angels, nor to men. God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are having a conversation amongst themselves. Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, because of that possibility, God decided to thrust him out and to drive him out of the garden. In other words, God knew that men in sin would act in this way and in this manner. 
that though he thus in his folly had fallen and had brought calamity upon himself by his disobedience, he would now, just as he was, stretch out his hand and clutch at that tree of life so that still he could go on living. Though he was fallen and sinful and having the knowledge of evil, he could still go on and defy God. So God sends him out. Now it is at that point I see most clearly of all the parallel between men at the beginning, the moment he fell, and men as he is at this present moment. Indeed, I would venture to assert this, that that one statement is the whole explanation of what we call the history of civilization. Now, read your history books. Don't take it from me. Don't only read your Bible. Read your secular history books. And not only read about kings and marriages and births and wars and deaths. Read about the history of thought. Read about men planning their utopias. Go back and read Greek philosophy. Read your mythology and all the rest of it. What's it all mean? It's this. Man thrust out He's always trying to get back. He knows that there in that garden there's a tree of life. And he wants it. He still won't admit his wrong. He won't admit his sin. He won't admit his dependence upon God. He wants to go on in spite of God. He wants to live an independent life that will be an eternal life. Still leaving God out of consideration. And he's doing it and has been doing it throughout the centuries. The whole story of civilization is the history of men trying to make a perfect world for himself without God. And every one of us has done it as an individual as well as as a part of the human race. Everybody in the world tonight is looking and seeking for peace, for happiness, for joy, for life. Everybody wants this. Yes, but the trouble is that men and women are seeking for all that without God. They don't think of God, they don't worship God, they don't pray to God, they've got no interest in him at all. They're not interested in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're interested in life, they're interested in peace, they're interested in joy, they're interested in happiness, and they're trying to get it. They'll try anyway, they're trying every way, and yet they can never find it. They're always outside. They're trying to banish death, They're trying to conquer the grave itself. They're trying to extend life. The ingenuity, the cleverness, the ability. All this all along the line is trying to perpetuate man as he is without God. But the whole enterprise, of course, is just tragic folly. And the first great message of the gospel, in a sense, is just to say this. That it is something which is utterly and absolutely impossible. Where do you find that, says someone? I find it in the last verse. 
So he drove men out and he placed at the east gate of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep, to guard the way of the tree of life. God knows men and he knows men in sin. He knew that though he'd thrust men out, men would say, no, if only I could get back there. If only I could get just one of those fruit of that tree of life. If only I could eat that. He'd be constantly crying. So God puts the cherubim and the flaming sword guarding the entrance, keeping the way of entry to the tree of life. What does this mean? This is the position of humanity tonight. This is the explanation of the fact that in spite of all the culture and the philosophizing and the thinking and the social action and the politics and the wars of 2,000 years and more, man is as he is tonight. He's still outside. He cannot get back. Why not? Cherubim, flaming sword. Whether you like it or not, my friend, it's the fact. You may be trying to get in. You'll no more get in than all your forefathers have failed. No one can get in. The cherubim, the flaming sword. What's it mean? What are the cherubim? Well, the cherubim are there to indicate and to represent the presence and the unapproachability of Jehovah God. Go through your Bible and look out for every reference to the cherubim. And you will always find that they're used to depict and to represent the glory, the majesty, the might, the ineffable glory, the presence of God. Do you remember how when God commanded Moses to build that tabernacle in the temple in the wilderness? One of the things he told him was to make what was called a mercy seat. He first of all had to make a box, the Ark of the Covenant, and in that he was to put the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. Then on top of that there was a kind of covering, and that covering led up to these two cherubim. These two cherubim were looking down upon this which is called the mercy seat, which is the kind of lid beneath which is the law of God. There it is. It is, you see, the representation of the holiness of God. That which looks down upon the law of God. The expression of God's holy nature. And then God, you see, put these cherubim there at the east gate, that entry to the Garden of Eden, through which he had just expelled men. So that what it means, you see, is just this. That whenever man tries to come back and to enter in and to obtain this blessing of life and of joy and of peace, he comes immediately, face to face, with God, the everlasting and eternal God, the God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. We read of the men who have come anywhere near him or who have seen just some glimpse of his glory. They fall down. They're helpless. They don't know what to do with themselves. God, the cherubim, representing the ineffable glory of God. 
And what else? Well, the flaming sword. The flaming sword which turned every way. If you suddenly see it on the left and think you can slip in on the right, it's back there before you can move. Try upwards, it's downwards, downwards, upwards. It's everywhere, turning round, and you'll never escape it, not avoid it. What is it? This, my dear friend, is nothing but the wrath of God against sin. And there is nothing more vital for us all to realize this evening than just that. Do you want life? Do you want happiness? Do you want peace? Do you want joy? Do you want to know that you can have an endless life that nothing can touch nor destroy? Are these the blessings you're seeking? Very well, I say to you. You'll never have them until you've passed God and his wrath against sin. They're behind him. He's there facing you. The only way of entrance. They're behind him. You've got to get past God. You've got to get past the sword of his wrath. And the final tragedy of man is that he's been trying to do that in his own strength throughout the centuries. He's looked to learning, he's looked to ability, he's looked to morality, he's looked to a thousand and one things. Men are still trusting to them, but they never find them. Why not? They're not passing God. They're not dealing with the sword. They cannot get in. It is the final folly of men in sin. Very well, says someone. Have you just come into that pulpit tonight to damn us all and to tell us that we're all hopeless and that we're all lost? Is the message of Christianity that men individually and as a world is doomed? Are you saying that there is no way to life and peace and joy and all that I stand in need of? Thank God that isn't my message. My message is to tell you that there is a way into that garden. There is only one. But there is one. Did you notice it as I read that section from the 10th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews just now? Listen to verses 19 and 20 again. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest of all, by the blood of Jesus, listen, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, let us draw near with full assurance of faith, Having our, having our hearts sprinkled with blood from dead works. What's it mean? Well, let me use this picture as I close to put it to you. There is only one way, I say, to obtain these blessings. And it is a way which has discovered the method of somehow or another standing in the presence of the glory of God and not being consumed. That's absolutely essential. 
There is no entry into that garden, into that paradise where the blessings of God are still to be found, except somehow we can stand before the glory of God and not shrivel into nothing. But it is possible. There is one and there is only one who can stand in the presence of God and look into his face of glory. And he is the Son of God, who is God himself, who shares the same glory, but who, blessed be his name, came down into this world and took human nature to himself was made flesh and dwelt among us, came outside into the wilderness, came out himself. He needn't have come. He wasn't driven out as men was. He came out. He came voluntarily out. He asked if he might come out, and the Father sent him. And he came to us in the wilderness and took our nature upon himself. He identified himself with us. He came as men, and he stands as man, God-man, and looks into the face of God. That's the first part. No one else could. Every saint in the Old Testament failed. No man can ever look into the face of God and live. No man can see God and live. Here is one who can because he is God as well as men. Ah, yes, you say that's all right, but what about the sword? Well, my dear friend... This is the most marvelous thing of all. He advanced against the flaming sword. And it smote him. And it killed him. And it broke his body. And in breaking his body, it broke itself. And the way is open into the paradise of God, to the tree of life, to salvation, and all its indescribable blessings. Did you notice how this man put it? By a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, his body. He advanced, I say, on the sword, and he said, smite me, and it smote him, and in, smoting, in smiting him, it smote and it smashed itself. And through the broken body and the shed blood of the Son of God, you and I can enter into that paradise from which man was thrown out and driven. And we can take of the tree of life and eat abundantly of it. You see, he has made a new and a living way. And he's done it through his own broken body. The bread represents it in this communion to which we are coming. And the, and the wine represents his blood. It's the only way. That's why we do this. This isn't mere custom or sham or habit or a mere picture. My friend, there is no way into the paradise of God except through Jesus Christ and him crucified. If he hadn't taken that smiting with the sword, there'd never be an opening even now, though he is the Son of God. It wasn't enough for the Son of God to come into the world. 
It wasn't enough for him to teach us. It wasn't enough for him to live perfectly and to give us an example. Before we can enter, the sword must do its work. And it has done it. Isaiah, 800 years before it actually happened, was given to see it by the Holy Spirit. He, he says, hath smitten him. Yes, says Peter, by whose stripes we are healed. He took it all upon himself. And so what was blocking the entrance is no longer there for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we can face God. We can have boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. Not myself, no, I'm a sinner vile, but he can satisfy and I'm in him. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience. He kept the law perfectly. Not only for himself, but for all who believe in him. My Savior's obedience and blood. Hide all my transgressions from view. Do you want life? Life which is life indeed. Life abundant. Life which will take you through death to eternity and glory. Do you want peace, joy and happiness? My dear friend, give up trying to obtain them in your own strength or in the strength of any men or any knowledge. They've all failed as they're still failing. There's only one way. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The way is through him, through his broken body. You pass through him and in him and you go into the presence of God who is ever ready to receive all who come to him by Jesus Christ. Thank God that the cherubim and the flaming sword that were placed there to guard the way to the tree of life are in Christ and for all who believe in him removed. And we can go into the presence of God and begin to receive those blessings which the world so sadly needs and which we shall continue to enjoy throughout eternity. Are you on this new and living way? Have you entered upon it? Have you given up relying on yourself, your own goodness, your own knowledge, your own anything? Give it up. It's of no value. It can never stand before God. A glance from God and you're finished. The sword will wipe it out in a second. This is the only way. And it is open to all who seeing and admitting their utter helplessness and emptiness and woe look unto him and yield themselves to him, the broken body, the veil that was rent,
the flesh that was torn, the blood that was shed, it leads to life. Amen.